Getting Your Drink On in the Ancient World, on this episode of Planet Artside. Hello, hi, welcome to Planet Artside, the official podcast of the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. My guest today is Steve Batchik, a research associate in the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations and the Archaeology Centre here at U of T. This summer, Steve is leading a field school in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. He and his students will be excavating a Neolithic site dating back more than 8,000 years, where they are uncovering the earliest known evidence of wine production. That's right, 8,000-year-old winemaking. Steve's research isn't just about how they made the wine, although he knows a thing or two about that. He's also exploring the role wine played in that ancient society, as well as the role it played as the people from that region spread out across the Middle East. So pour yourself a glass and settle in. This is Planet Artside, so stick around. So Steve, you study ancient winemaking. Where in the world is this ancient winemaking taking place, or where did it take place? Well, ancient winemaking is is one of the, uh, my areas of interest that I that I study. I predominantly I study uh, the well ancient societies of the Near East of, of the Middle East, um, but in particular in my studies in examining wine, uh, it's led us to looking at well the Caucasus uh, specifically and well the country of Georgia in particular, uh, where the earliest evidence of wine production actually emerged now georgia that's right near russia turkey azerbaijan yes the black the, sea area yes the republic of georgia as, as my friend always says think caviar not peaches right okay okay and, and what exactly are you researching there uh well the the main focus right now is we are excavating a small neolithic village uh dates to about uh well Six six thousand BC, approximately, is what we're looking at. Uh, it is well. We are looking at their entire way of life, how they lived, what food stuff they they were uh, growing, eating, producing, what their trade interactions were, and as part of that, one of the things we're investigating because it's shown up in the in the excavations is part of one of the crops that they are growing is grapes. They're domesticated grapes, and this is actually the earliest evidence of domesticated grapes we have uh, in the ancient world. And we're mustering, with a lot of help from some people all over the world, uh, evidence that we actually they are actually using those grapes to produce wine. Okay, let's go back a step, though. Who were the people that were living there thousands and thousands of years ago in the Neolithic period? Who, who What was that culture? Who were they? Well, uh... Who were they? We don't. We never really know. Uh, looking that far back in the past, we we give the archaeological culture a name. It's it's called the Shomoshulaveris culture. It's named after the sites that these this culture was first identified at, uh, and uh, so it, the the main site that it was originally found at is the site called Shulaveris Gora, uh, which is really actually about a kilometer away from the site that we are excavating at now, called Gadachrdi. Now, this site, is it was a village at one time, or is it more specific than that? It's, it was a village, nothing too exciting when you really look at it. Uh, it is maybe about a hectare and a half in size. Um, it's small, round houses per, is, is the main architecture that you find, with little, um, uh, they're all made out of mud brick, I should also say, and then small mud brick basins and whatnot around, lots of uh, stone tools used for 
for uh, collecting grains or actually probably clipping grapes as well, uh, where we find lots of evidence of wheat, barley, and also domesticated grapes. So it was a very simple village, really. And the wine itself seems like it would have been a simple wine? It would have been a very simple wine. Uh, we don't really have a good idea of what... We, we know it's red, at least, at this point. Uh, we don't know exactly what type of wine. It's been sort of suggested that it, the closest equivalent would per perhaps be a Shiraz. Okay. Uh, but this is an educated guess at best, I believe. We're not going to find it on the LCBO shelves. You will not. <laughs> so how do you, how did you say you found evidence? You found uh, evidence of uh, like wheat and barley and, and grapes having been grown there. So at what point do you, are you able to make the leap to they were creating wine? At what point does it not become a leap? Does it become more evidence-based? Right. Well, th this falls into an avenue of research that I am not an expert in. There's actually probably only one or two experts in it in the world right now. Uh, but we are working with uh, pretty much the, the man who initiated the whole um, avenue of investigation, which his name is Pat Patrick McGovern. He's at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, so when it comes to the excavations, we, you know, obviously the stuff is, or the, the seeds and the fruit are organic. They do not survive, you know, 8,000 years in, in the soil. So what we are left with are the carbonized remains. And so we find grape seeds in the in the uh, in the excavations, and we can tell from the shape of the seeds whether they have been domesticated or not. But then there are also sometimes you can't the changes uh, haven't happened all the way. Like when you domesticate these plants, they go through some physiological changes that show up in the seeds, and sometimes that hasn't shown all the way. But you can actually even still sometimes, if you're lucky, pull out genetic material and you can see the genetic markers from domestication. So we have evidence of that, that they, we've got domesticated grapes. But the question of how we can actually say it's wine is a little more complicated and falls into, well, chemistry, uh, where when you produce the wines uh, and then, well, when you make wine and then when it dries out, if it leaves a residue, as you probably see in any empty wine bottle and whatnot, the chemicals kind of break down and leave a signature that would be unique for wine itself. Uh, in this case here, the main thing they are looking for is something called tartaric acid. Uh, and so that you can, if you are lucky, if you're fortunate, you can find traces of it. And that is your evidence of, of wine, or at least one of your, your best evidence of wine. The other thing that helps us too is that uh, <coughs> as a way of stabilizing wine, right? Because Wine, you know, if, if it gets too much oxygen, it'll turn sour or whatnot, turns into vinegar. But one of the oldest ways that they use, they stabilized their wine was to actually put tree resin in there. And so, like Greek retsina, the right. ba same basic concept. And so, you can actually find some chemical signatures of the resin as well. So, the combination of the tartaric acid, which you could argue could be from grape juice, but you combine that with the evidence of the tree resin, that pretty much solidifies the idea that you're dealing with wine. And so this culture went from accidentally discovering wine by having grapes ferment in the bottom of a of a, some sort of vessel and become alcohol to intentionally growing grapes and processing them to create wine. But then what role did the wine play in the culture at that time? Do you have a sense of, of 
for the Neolithic culture, we... Was it just a way to get hammered after a <laughs> long day in the fields or killing wild animals? Probably not. Um, when you look at... Uh, well, one of the best examples is uh, there is a great... Uh, jar that you can see in the Tbilisi, well, in the Georgian National Museum in Tbilisi today, uh, that comes from a contemporary site. Well, it's about, I think it's about a hundred years later. Um, and of course I'm drawing a blank on the name of the site itself right now, but you look at it and you can actually see them putting, they, they've actually in plastic decorations, oh, they've molded out of clay grapes, uh, basically a cluster of grapes onto the vessel itself. And Actually, we've we found more of these, or at least fragments of these vessels, at other Neolithic sites. Particularly, there's this one called Aruklo that's being excavated by the Germans. So the fact that this imagery is starting to per pervade so much of their culture would seem to suggest that it's much more than just a way to get hammered. It is something that uh, is become deeply embedded in their culture. Like when we think of wine today, you know, the first culture we always think about is the French, right? And <laughs> But what symbols do the French have with wine? Well, I guess if you go to churches, you can see great clusters mm -hmm. popping up and sure. stuff like that. And so it's kind of the same concept. And actually, if you go to Georgia, uh, the Republic of Georgia in particular, they honestly, the French have nothing on them when it comes to an obsession with the grape. You'll be walking down the streets and like the, the fences that everybody has have mel uh, molded clusters of grapes on the walls, uh, all over the churches, every like uh, illustrated manuscripts. Everywhere you look, you see the evidence of grapes, like images of grapes. So it's, it's something that has been deeply absorbed by their culture and it's become very important. And it looks like you see the roots of that going back 6,000 BC. Okay, and now your research, you're talking a little bit about how the the winemaking spread. So where did it go, and when did it go, and how did it go? Uh, <laughs> That's it's easy. It's a complicated question. Uh, really? No, I seem pretty simple when I said it. <laughs> um, well, this again comes back to this idea of the early Transcaucasian culture. Uh, so this culture began... It, it, it grows out of that Neolithic culture. Uh, so it starts probably about the fifth or fourth millennium, probably fourth millennium, but we're having a lot of issues arguing about the, the dates of that right now. Uh, and it starts in the, the basically the Kura and, River, Kura and Araxes River Basin. So the, the Kura is in Georgia and the Araxes in, is in Armenia. So it's basically it's found, its homeland is within those two countries, if you will. And they are, again, it's a simple village life, although we do have evidence of more complexity popping up every year, it seems. There's always some new surprise popping up. Uh, then sometime around 3300, 3400, these guys start to spread out of the Caucasus itself, and they spread out in this sort of two-pronged route, if you will. They go east down into Iran, uh, going as far south as... The, the Kangavar Valley, which was uh, actually a place that the Royal Ontario Museum excavated in the 1970s, uh, the excavations at Godin Tepe, which incidentally actually uh, was the first vessel that uh, they, they found a vessel that was dated to, again, the, like the fourth, third millennium, that was the first vessel that Pat McGovern had actually tested that proved that it had wine. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it sits in the, in the museum today. Over here at the ROM. At the ROM, yeah. 
so they go east into into Iran, but then they also go west, and they go all the way through eastern Turkey, down into Syria, all the way down into Israel. So it is an extremely wide dispersion. And <coughs> you know, the question people have always wondered is, what were these people doing? And so this is where I put forward the idea that they may not necessarily have brought wine with them, but they brought the skills, the know-how. And when well, you, they probably packed a couple of bottles. Probably, <laughs> although it was probably wineskins more at that point. Because <laughs> try to go that far with a with a clay bottle, mm, sure, wouldn't really survive. Um, and so the my hypothesis, at least, is that when they move into these new regions, which are always populated, they're not moving into empty areas. There's already cultures that are there. Uh, that had been developing on their own for for thousands of years. And they move in, and they always seem to live side by side, and they form this sort of symbiotic relationship, it seems. We can see in some of the larger settlements that the the uh, early Transcaucasian people almost settle into little neighborhoods. It's, you know, much like you see in Toronto today with Chinatown, Little Italy. This is kind of human behavior. We do that all the time. Right. And we, do that, we did that 5,000 years ago, it seems. Um, and, but then they also set up these small villages always on the outskirts of the major settlement systems. And what I suggested is that it's in these small farmsteads that they are essentially making the wine, they're, gro they're growing the grapes, they're making the wine, and then they are then shipping it to the big towns, if you will. Some of it is staying locally, they're drinking it themselves, but a large portion is going to the city centers where... This, of course, is the perfect time as well because this is where cities are developing and you have elites coming up and they're, they're trying to look for all the symbols and, and, and all the trappings of, of power, if you will, or ways to actually manipulate people. And wine sort of fits beautifully into that system. How do we know that these places where they went into Turkey and down into Israel, for example, that they didn't already have wine and winemaking there already? They probably had some. Israel in particular, we know that they were making wine uh, already in, in the before the early Transcaucasian people got there because they were actually major suppliers of wine for Egypt uh, in the very early part of the, of the Bronze Age. Uh, but in the other areas, well, they probably were making some, but when you look at the archaeological record... You know, ceramics is the bread and butter of the archaeologist. And you look at what's there, and they don't really have a lot of material for drinking. You have maybe some bowls, but it's platters, uh, nothing that screams out drinking, right? But then at the time that the early Transcaucasian people show up, they come up, and their ceramics actually have vessels for drinking mm -hmm. that are fairly distinctive. And you actually start to see the locals copying those vessels, and then after a generation or so, you see an explosion of, of goblets all over the place. Or not just goblets, but also jugs for pouring and serving wine, like that little guy right over there. Or um, uh, large vessels for perhaps mixing or storing wine as well. So these Transcaucasian people were welcomed by these new cultures? I think, yes. Probably eventually there are always going to be... You know, you're, I'm sure every culture has their, um, what's our favorite guy's name there? Um, our Trump. Yes, <laughs> every culture has their Trump. Every, sure. every culture has their Trump who probably, you know, because you are, they are coming in and they are going to be fighting, in, well, not fighting, but negotiating over space and access, access to resources. And this is one of the reasons why I think 
with them coming in with a unique product, mm-hmm. this is what allowed them to live side by side and thrive alongside these people. And what does that tell us about the, the, the cultures that developed, the societies that developed in these regions then? Can you, are you, are you able to then extrapolate or are you looking to see like the, the ripple effect or the ramifications of, of the, the Transcaucasians coming in and, and introducing winemaking or, or a different kind of winemaking? Well, the ripple effect obviously is the the massive introduction of wine and how that then is used as perhaps as a symbol, how it's used as uh, well a symbol of wealth that is not only just for the elite for the elites but also for everybody else. Because w- when you look at it, it's not these drinking goblets aren't only in the palaces, aren't only in the in these specific areas. It's throughout the entire region. It's everybody's got it. So everybody obviously has access to this. It's it's something that is uh, it's important. It's a prestige item, but it's at least it seems to be made in such a volume that everybody has access to it. It's kind of like wine is today in our society, whereas it's special. We all have access to it. We all drink it, but it's identified as something special. I would think though that that wine making and, and wine being introduced back then would have impact uh, economically uh not just culturally but also maybe on health i mean water was probably not the safest cleaning yeah so I, <laughs> I would think that a lot of times they might drink wine instead of water so that would have health ramifications are you seeing that or speculating about that at all well that that probably played a part, but also keep in mind that most of these societies were also probably using beer for something like that. Because ah, beer, beer of course can be made. Beer and wine have two sort of sort of complementary uh, productions. Beer, you can use basically any grain to do it. It can be done at any time of the year, really. Uh, so, and it has to be done in large batches, right? So, basically, any time of the year, you can wh- whip up a batch, and there'll be a large batch, and you have to feed a, a good number of people for it. So it's actually, you know, it's, it's it was used a lot for uh, payment for mass labor or something like that. Or even as, you know, I'm thinking of when I used to work in Ethiopia, where you would have the same idea of these things called sua houses. And sua was the same basic idea of beer. And you'd have an individual household that would, she would, the, the, the woman would actually make the beer in the pot, and then she would just put a little flag hanging up the door. And that way, everybody knew that, that that house at that time had beer, and people could come for a couple of days a year, and or a couple of days a week, if you will, and drink until that was finished, and then somebody else would actually have some. So beer was uh, drunk much more universally. Um, wine, however, it's it's kind of weird in that it's a prestige item because it's it's a restricted access. It can only be made once a year. So when it's made and you've bottled it or what have you or put it in skins, that's all you have for that year. So it's a limited amount, but it can then be replenished every year after that. So it will then have a higher value than beer and therefore be a little bit more special. So the first wine snobs then? After fashion, yes. <laughs> so yes, when it comes to a health aspect, you know, wine could be used for clearing out water and, and it, it was for sure they dip a little or pour a little bit of water or wine in the water to, to kill any bacteria but beer was probably used more often as uh, in, in that respect for you know replacement for water plus it also had the added benefit of a lot more protein as well 
this is actually a new avenue that we're just starting to investigate. And it's funny because it was staring us in the mm-hmm. face for so long. Uh, but in looking at the, the ceramic vessels that probably contained the, the, the wine, uh, even in cases where we don't have the residue, we might be able to tell. Uh, because when you actually ferment alcohol in these clay vessels, the, the liquid will actually penetrate a thin layer of the clay. And then as it ferments, it release, it outgasses, and you end up seeing the, the clay basically just starts to pop off, flake off. And so you get this very distinctive you know, sort of moonscape pattern that shows up on the inside of these vessels. And so we're actually starting to find that more and more in a, a lot of vessels that we actually think might have been used for wine, in particular for the early Transcaucasian culture. But we think also now we can use this for the Neolithic in lieu of being able to have the chemical evidence, which is often very difficult to have or to, well, you have to be very lucky to be able to get the right um, chemicals. This at least is a pointer in, in areas where in cases where we don't have that chemical evidence. And just to remind people, we're talking about things that are thousands and thousands of years old. We're talking like 5,000, 6,000 years ago. Yep. So it's not surprising that there's... 8,000. 8,000. Okay. It's not surprising that there's very little evidence and and this kind of surprises you when you do find it. Yes, it is is a crapshoot. It is luck of the draw. That's what a lot of archaeology is. Archaeology is one of these uh, disciplines that it really is multidisciplinary. You know, we... This is very much a catchphrase nowadays with with, with 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 so many different jobs, but archaeology is one of these areas that you have to know so many different things. You can't be the expert in all of them, but you have to at least be able to comprehend what you're reading, uh, be able to use the data that you're coming at. So you know, we often joke that archaeologists are, are um, jack-of-all-trades, masters of none, but we do have to be masters of some. And this is perhaps myself one of the reasons why I love archaeology is because you are pushed in so many different directions. Your, 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 your brain is tested in so many ways. And so the skills that you develop, you know, even just as an undergrad studying archaeology, it can lead you in avenues well outside of academia. I'm going to guess that you didn't set out to, to become a, a winemaking expert in, in terms of uh, going into archaeology. That wasn't why you got into archaeology. God, no. This was a complete accident. I fell into it. Why did you come to archaeology then? What what inspired you? Uh, actually, what inspired me was I had a high school teacher who uh, I took a ancient history class with her, and she just was so dynamic, and she brought it to life so much that I, right out of high school, I said, I want to be an archaeologist. And I've fought my way through it. <laughs> and where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at the University of Ottawa. Okay. And then I did my MA and PhD here at University of Toronto. Now, what brought you to U of T from Ottawa? Uh, well, at Ottawa, I was studying classical studies, so the Greek and Roman civilization. But, you know, one of the things is that there's so much more to the ancient world than just Greece and Rome. And when, when you actually look at it, uh, there for, for all of Canada, U of T is the only place that actually does Near Eastern studies. You have Wilfrid Laurier that does deal with it as an undergraduate, and UBC does have some as well, but U of T is the only place that covers the full spectrum of Near Eastern archaeology and um, does it for undergraduate and graduate work. And 
I just found the Greek and Roman world as interesting as it was, it was too limiting for me. And I was always fascinated with with stuff in particular in Turkey is what actually got me pulled further east, if you will, and further back in time. So what led to winemaking? Uh, well, again, it was completely accidental. Uh, my my dissertation was the, working on this early Transcaucasian culture. And I basically finished up with with no explanation as to what exactly these people were doing. I th The argument was whether it was a migration or whether it was the result of the spread of this material was it a migration or was it a result of something else and didn't even know how to approach that the the other question it was beyond the purview of the dissertation and it just actually was happenstance i was um not entirely sure what i was looking for but i came across pat mcgovern's work on on the internet and i was just going through his website and i saw the map that he had that showed the distribution of where ancient wine was where, where grapes were where grapes grow naturally and i looked at it and i said damn it that looks familiar right. and so I, I i took i took his map and one of the one of the skills i i deal with is geographical information systems and that was a big part of my dissertation where i was looking at the actual spatial distribution of all these sites and so i took his map and i overlaid it with my distribution of where all of the sites that produce this culture are found and it was like wow <laughs> look at that it overlays beautifully and that was a hint that i maybe needed to look in this direction now i understand that you use a lot of modern really you know, leading edge technology. I know you've done, used a drone, for example, to get some aerial photography. Can you talk a little bit about the technology you're using in, at the site in order to, to make these discoveries? Uh, well, when it comes to the site, yes, there's a lot of technologies that are, that we're using and still emerging. Like Again, this archaeology just, we steal from every other discipline around. We steal from physics, we steal from chemistry, we steal from engineering, we steal, and we have to do modern languages, ancient languages. It's again, jack of all trades. And so with uh, this site in particular, well, we have the drone that we're using for doing aerial photography and also building 3D models of the site itself or of the excavations. Uh, you use the same software to be able to build 3D models of the objects that you're finding. Uh, of course, everything is going to be recorded spatially with, uh, with the total station. So we're using survey equipment and all of that data is brought into a geographical information systems that you will use for mapping and analyzing sort of spatial patterns. Um, and one of the things we will be experimenting with is also sort of 3D recording uh, using cameras and the idea of being able to create immersive environments for, say, the classroom, so that you know, you've seen on the news right now that um, that all these 3D helmets now the that Oculus are coming out, Rift. Oculus Rift, and, yes. or even just being able to slide your, your cell phone into it, like the, this technology is now becoming ubiquitous, and some content needs to be developed. And so one of the things we're actually going to be uh, working with this summer is the idea of building some of this 3D content specifically for classes like archaeology, so that you're actually recording what it's like to be in a trench or in an excavation or doing analysis. And so students will be able to don these uh, <laughs> these uh, 3D tools and be able to look around to get a full view of what being on a dig is actually like. So they'll be in a classroom here at U of T. They'll put on these goggles or, or whatever the mechanism is, a helmet, whatever it happens to be, and it will be like they are actually 
on the site doing the excavating. That is the hope. These, this is, again, it's a new technology, so we're experimenting with it. And the idea is to yes, find new ways to bring it all to life and make the classroom experience much more meaningful. Now let's talk about GRAPE, which is a, a field school that you have coming up for students this summer. I'm not going to say what GRAPE stands for because I would mangle the pronunciation, <laughs> but I'll let you give it a shot. So it's the, the, site, the, the name of the site is Gadachriligora. And yes, you will trip over that many times. I have myself. So Gadichaligora Regional uh, Archaeological Project Expedition. And we, well, we're, we're excavating the, the main site of Gadachrili, but there are, like I said, the Shula Verisgora is very close. There's actually a number of these Neolithic sites all within, within spitting distance of each other. Uh, and so we're not only going to be doing the excavations, but we'll also be taking a more holistic landscape approach, looking at the relationship between the one site, the other site, the entire environment around it, the, the water sources, the mineral sources that are around it, uh, the trade routes and whatnot. And so it'll be a larger uh, project in the long run, but right now we're starting off with just the excavations of the site itself. You'll be taking graduate students, undergraduate students? We're taking uh, undergraduate students for the most part. We'll have, uh, depending on the number of undergraduate students we have, we'll have uh, a couple of graduate students to help supervising and whatnot. But the aim is to bring undergraduate students and give them, uh, well, the full experience of taking what they learn in the classes and actually putting them into practical use and helping them understand the theory that they learn in class. much de- much more deeply. Did you have those kind of opportunities when you were a student? I did. Uh, I started off, my first excavation was in southern France, actually. Uh, Wine related? Uh, not per se. It was, it was, it was a Roman <laughs> not, not, while you, not while you were actually working. <laughs> no, at night, no. there, was some, there was some wine exploration going I, I on. I might have had a, a, a plastic barrel of wine under my bed. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, my first excavation was a, a Roman site in, in southern France at a place called saint pertin de Comminges, um that was run by University of Ottawa. And it was a fantastic experience, not just the learning experience alone, but just the, the cultural experience. Because in these projects, you're in most usually, not all, not all it depends on, on the project itself, but in this case here, we are camping and we are living in these, in this small rural village. And that's kind of the same concept we're hoping to do here with Gadachli, is that we will be living in a far, uh, basically a farmstead, or probably a couple of farms adjacent to each other in a rural village. And you get, you get the full experience of what life is like in a foreign country. Uh, living, well, it, it, it won't be Definitely won't be luxury, but it will be. We'll do our best to make it as comfortable as possible. You, you, we will have Georgian students that will be coming from the local university, so you'll be having a lot of cultural interaction with local Georgians, uh, where you'll learn a lot about the Georgian culture, which is phenomenal. <laughs> I will have to tell you, uh, eating local foods, and then every day you're out on site. You're excavating, you're learning. We come back uh, from the from the excavations at the end of the day and you're processing. So you're learning how to work through the material, understand the material, its context, how it was used. And then on the weekends, we will have day trips to important sort of cultural or historical uh, centers and maybe the odd winery. Where is your research going next? What's the next question that you're trying to answer or the question after that? Um, well... 
right now with, with right now we're focusing on the Neolithic, but I think the hope will be after we're done with this site uh, is to come back to my early Transcaucasian culture again and uh, try to investigate the earliest roots of it in in the Caucasus and well, first of all, sort out the chronology because as you know, my description at the beginning, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about when it all starts. Uh, but then also understand it better because really when you look at the 700 plus sites that you find this culture at all across the area, we have very few that are actually fully excavated. So the idea of to be able to go back, find one of our earlier sites and get a good, under, a good holistic understanding of what that culture actually looked like in the homeland, I think would be powerful and really important. And then hopefully the idea would be also to eventually maybe move to another site in another region in one of the other, uh, like the, the, the migrant uh, zones. Uh, I, I also work with the University of Toronto project at Tel Tainat in southern mm-hmm. Turkey. Yep. Uh, I've been working there for 16 years and that's actually one of the reasons why I was working there was because this is an area where you found the early Transcaucasian culture. And so the hope would be that one day we'll be able to actually go and investigate one of these what I'm thinking are the the bodegas, the mm-hmm. the the wine um, production areas in perhaps this area of southern Turkey. So we shall see. Why is it important to to know about these these cultures that are six, seven, eight thousand, nine thousand years old? Beyond the idea that knowledge itself is important, why 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 do we care? Or why should we care? Well, this is us. This is our history. This is how can you write our own possible history, our own understanding of ourselves, or how do we actually relate to other cultures if we do not understand where, where it all came from? Uh, I guess that's you know one of the standard answers that everybody always gives, but it's actually kind of true. Um, and you know, it's specifically when you're dealing with the, the question of something like wine, this is something that everybody can actually relate to. Everybody knows. Everybody's probably drunk it, at least at some point, and it has deep meaning to everybody in every culture, it seems almost. You know, think of the religious role, uh, the way that that wine plays in, say, something like Christianity. It's something that's pervasive in our society. So how do we understand, as you were asking, how did this all get started? How did it spread? These are These are actually larger, important questions that, beyond satisfying just general intellectual curiosity will actually say a lot about us. I can imagine a coffee table book on the history of winemaking. That would be amazing. And that would put it in people's homes who aren't archaeologists or historians who are just wine aficionados, casual wine drinkers, what have you. But there it is, the history of wine. Yep, that's... You know, down, down the road, that is one of the things we're, we're hoping to go for. Uh, one of the interesting things that comes out of this, too, is the variety in wine production. We, uh, we, we just think that, you know, you take your grapes, you crush them, you, you ferment the juice, and that's that. But uh, they're actually, ha- when you go through the ages, people actually approached how they made wine differently, or even how they even grow the grapes. You know, we think of all these trellises of grapes that are growing down Niagara, but, well, what, what did people do before we actually had wire to be able to string this across? Uh, well, you know, they would flat train them up trees or they would actually just grow them on the ground. You can go to 
Santorini in Greece, and you actually still see this weird way that they grow their grapes, that they actually, it's all circular, it's like a bird's nest, and you pull the grapes out of there. There's, we all have different ways of doing it. We've kind of, uh, unfortunately, we, we've sort of been obsessed with the Greek and Roman way, and that has pervaded a lot of Western culture. But when you actually cast your gaze further out, you can actually find a lot more amazing stuff. Even the way the Georgians traditionally make their wine is different from what we would do today. And a lot of winemakers would kind of turn their nose up at it in that you actually, you make it in these things that they call quevri, which are large clay jars that you bury down in the ground up to about the neck. Now, the way most people would make wine in the Western way, they would, you would crush the grapes, you would uh, leave them to ferment for a little bit, and then you take them out, you press them to get the juice away from the skins. You make sure that you don't have the skins touching the, uh, the stems either, too, when you are actually fermenting it. And then you let it age by itself. Whereas the Georgians throw everything together. They, they crush the grapes, they throw the grapes, the seeds, the stems, everything goes in there together. And whereas in the case here, you know, you would have it fermenting for, uh, for maybe a week or two, and then that's when you would press it out. The Georgians leave it in those clay vats for eight months or so. And it's in the ground, the, the, the temperature variation, the ground uh, gives it, well, adds extra characteristics to it as well. So when you actually get true Georgian wines, this stuff is... The reds are opaque. They are just, they're so dark. They're so full of flavors. Uh, honestly, I, I can't sell it enough. Uh, it's, you, you have to really try Georgian wines. Uh, but unfortunately, some of the ones in the LCBO, the ones that seem to show up in the market here, are not necessarily the best. They really need to work on their marketing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when, when you actually, especially if you can go over there and you try some of their wines, and it's just, it blows your mind. It's just so different from what we're used to. Some of them tend to be uh, sweet, which again, we our Western palates kind of turn our nose up at that, mm -hmm. but it actually does work. Uh, don't really want to drink too much of that stuff. It gets a little overpowering after a while, but in particular, the Russians love that. And so that's why we end up getting a lot of uh, sweet wines here in the LCBO because the Russian communities just gobble right. it all up. But if we can ever get uh, a, a wider variety of, of Georgian wines in the LCBO and people could try them, oh, the, you know, it would just be such a surprise for everybody. They would fall in love with it immediately. Is there one or two you could recommend? If I were to if I were to go to the LCBO and look for a Georgian wine, right? Presuming they had Georgian. Well, wine. the ones that I've seen here, uh, there's this one company called Marani. Uh, Marani is actually the Georgian word for wine cellar, okay. <laughs> uh, and and so they they have a dry red wine that is actually really really nice. Um, Kidzmaruli, if you can actually say that five times fast. Uh, Kidzmaruli is one of the more sweeter wines, but it's actually something that you probably need to try uh, just because it's so bloody unique. Right. Uh, and, and again, it's it's so it's full body, like it's it's beyond what we normally call full body wines. It's just it's it's amazing stuff. Uh, and uh, Talani Valleys is another one that I have seen white here. I actually just picked up a, uh, a red when I was in Montreal the other week. So they, they are exporting them out. Uh, and then if you can, there actually is 
uh, one, it's probably the most famous brand that has made it out of Georgia and in, into the North American market, but it's, uh, it's called Pheasant's Tears. And, okay. uh, it, and they actually bo- bottle some of the stuff that's made in the Cuevri itself. Talani and Marani are made in, in the more Western style, but because you have to make uh, small batches if you're doing it in the Cuevri. Right. And so Pheasant's, Pheasant's Tears actually sells uh, some of the Cuevri wines, and this is where you can get some of the great examples of you know, how, how this stuff tastes. That's another episode of Planet Art Sci in the Books. My thanks to ancient wine expert Steve Batchik. Planet Art Sci has been brought to you by the letters A and S at the University of Toronto. I'm Barrett Hooper. You can follow me on Twitter at Planet Art Sci. Thanks for listening.